This podcast may contain explicit language and themes, so listener discretion is advised. Ill-advised, misinformed, our half-baked opinions will be performed. Are you ready? Is the mic on? Welcome to the Hill to Die On. You're listening to A Hill to Die On, a podcast hosted by two stubborn as shit Aussies who give hot takes on a different topic every week, go away to dig deeper, and then reconvene to share whether or not their hot take hill was worth dying on. We're your hosts, once gifted children Josie Spicer and Kara Brooks. Welcome to this week's episode where we ask, does money really buy you happiness? But before we get started, just wanted to give a shout out to our first ever patron, Again, you can support the show by heading to hilltodieonpod.com, going to the top, click support, off you go. So we'd like to give a big thank you to Anna. You are now a certified Fanny Candida. I guess I should say thank you as well. Thank you, Anna. Welcome. Welcome to the Fanny Candidas. That's all I got. No, but legit, that's really cool. So this week we're asking the question, can money really buy you happiness? I have already had a bit of like a self soapboxy talk in the car today while driving to yourself or yeah like you know like oh, kind of in my head you know. <laughs> oh like a shower argument yeah like a shower argument in my yeah, head. yeah 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 i'm i'm super paranoid about people looking in my window so i, I wasn't <laughs> even like in my mouth. this crazy bitch <laughs> just like... but like sometimes it happens like sometimes i'll have an argument my head and then I realized I'm like making the facial expressions oh, out yeah. loud I do that definitely <laughs> sometimes I notice I'm even like whispering it oh know? yeah yeah to start off Kara does money buy you happiness yes I think money buys you time which buys you happiness I don't think that material possessions necessarily make you happy yeah what about do you think that money can buy you happiness Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, with all these things, there's ifs and buts and caveats and yeah. But to start off, I want to push back on money buys you time. I'm curious about that. Because like, if you're working a lot to earn that money, does that necessarily buy you time? Yeah, but what if you're not? Like, what if you just inherited money or you want? And you have it's not do you, should you like if you're working a job where you make enough money? Does that make you happy? It's just money. Like if you just given money. Like that would be, yeah, like when you can buy time with that. And if you have more money, if you're from a position of privilege where you just have money um, and you take that for granted, it's like that does give you the freedom to buy time. Um, You cannot go to work that day. You can't, you know, like there's a lot of things you can do when you have money. And I guess even in a higher paying job, you should theoretically be able to have like some leave or potentially even unpaid leave. And not starve to death. Yeah, so I, I actually didn't know how you go on this. I'm pleased to know that we're both on the same hill on this one, but I wasn't sure how you'd approach it. Yeah, I was curious because you'd said you were getting in arguments and I was like, oh, God, is Josie going to be like totally no? For this? <laughs> so anyone that engages with me online, it should be no surprise to you that I'm very much into US politics and the Iowa caucuses and I am definitely on the Bernie side of things and and everything he believes in. So social security safety net is what I'm about. I've also read a little bit into this matter, both through my justice degree and um, just as an interest. So first of all, I feel like the platitude of money can't buy you happiness is something that 
either people who are currently going through financial distress, like say to themselves to be like, you know, I can find happiness within me right now. I'm not saying it's impossible, but when you have other stressing factors, then it's difficult to be, yeah, just ignore them. But more often I feel like it's someone who probably does come from a background of privilege being like, oh, well, money doesn't buy you happiness. As in they're saying it to poor people <laughs> yeah, not pursue the money or they're, they're saying it because they're just fucking miserable. Maybe both. Maybe both. And again, I think it's very possible to have money and be unhappy. But if you can afford healthcare and be able to see, like address the sources of unhappiness, then like you're still in a better position than so many other people. I feel like for both of us, Cara, if we had more money, we would be able to like address health, chronic health conditions. We wouldn't feel the constant stress of like, can we afford this? Or like, can I afford a week off work? Or, um, you know, every time you get a letter from Centrelink, there's this like churning feeling in your gut. And, you know, people have killed themselves because being poor makes them miserable. Like so many people killed themselves over the robo debt in Australia. People continue to kill themselves over the unfair work for the dull expectations that Centrelink put on people. You're made to feel like you failed morally for being poor. So even just not having the negative connotation of being a poor person attached to you, I feel like it's going to fundamentally make you happier. Yeah, there's just certain things where it's like you don't have the stigma of that. And you're not having a fight against it or like defy expectation by proving people wrong. Of, mm-hmm. like, I'm actually a good person. I just don't have money. Or, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I am the uh, rich kind of poor. <laughs> so not poor enough to get Centrelink, but not rich enough to really do anything. Um, so I, it's, I'm a casual employee. I can't take sick days. Like I go to work when I'm sick, which sucks. Um, I try not to, if it's like, you know, I'm not going to starve that week and I don't want to infect other people. Obviously I'll try and like swap shifts or get them covered. And, but it's just extra stress that you don't need. It would be really nice to just be like, you know what? I'm too sick to work. I'll just stay home. I th- but, you're what people, I guess, would say working poor. Yeah. Yeah. Which I feel more and more people, especially like in our generation are becoming as well with the casualization of work as well. Absolutely. Like it's crazy to me how many jobs these days are casual and then people wonder why, you know, millennials are so fucking like all over the shop and we don't have supers and we're all stressed. And it's like, yeah, because (laughs) all the jobs are fucking casual. My super account has like 20K in it. Cool, sick. May as well just fucking retire now, right? Like it'll last me six months. (laughs) Actually, that's more than I make in six months, which is different. But yeah, it'll last me a year. (laughs) It's wild. And the cost of living is so high. This is partially an economics debate as much as it's um, also, you know, the debate of happiness. One thing about happiness is that a co-worker said to me recently, he was basically saying everyone wants to be happy. Like that's sort of everyone's goal in life. And I was like, "Mm, no, I'm going to disagree with you. And he was like, what, you don't want to be happy? And I said, honestly, I, I just don't think it's an option for me. Um, yeah. and, I, and I'm okay with that. I'm not a happy person and that's fine. And it took me a long time to be fine with that because society sort of impresses on you that it's so important and happiness is sort of everyone's goal and this should be it's just not fucking realistic especially you can't be you, happy all the time it is a state of being it's not something to aspire to like it's something that just comes and goes and there's going to be times when you're happy and times when you're not and things that make you happy and things that make you unhappy or and i just think there's a lot of stigma and stress and 
tangible fucking issues that come with being poor that you don't have to deal with on the same level. Like it's definitely not more money, more problems, you know, more money, less problems. Trust me, if you've been in the fucking gutter, I can tell you some money would have been fucking nice. Because our argument is, yes, money can buy you happiness, but I guess... It's fleeting. (laughs) It's still going to be fleeting, right? It's like maybe you're with less stresses, you're more likely to have those moments of happiness. Yeah. In my own studies, so looking at ways to keep people out of prison or ways to like keep people from reoffending, almost all of the proposed resolutions are like make sure there's there's an adequate security net make sure these people have like an income that they have agency over make sure that they have like steady housing and meaningful work and that's how you get people productive and happy but no one wants to look at that long-term shit right so yeah. they they use punitive measures in the justice system so basically that's my soapbox yeah okay Kara. well let's go away and either learn how maybe money can't buy us happiness and we're just like, we're choosing to be unhappy, Kara. Um, it's just all a choice. I mean, I do love complaining, to be fair. That's not even being facetious. Kara, it's been a week since we went away to try and figure out whether or not money buys happiness. Would you like to go through what you found? I mean, I read a few things that I found pretty interesting. So the first one I read was a study that came out of Cambridge University in 2016, Mm -hmm. and it was called Money Buys Happiness When Spending Fits Our Personality. Um, It was by Sandra C. Matz, Joe J. Gladstone, and David Stilwell. And basically over six months, they looked at 76,000 bank transaction records and they found that individuals spent more on products that match their personality. Uh, people whose purchases better match their personality reported higher rates of life satisfaction. The study, like at one point, asserted that the right type of spending was on experiences or other people, but it did say like not for those whose values don't emphasize a concern for others. So if you were to you know, spend a bunch of money on other people but you don't actually give a shit about anyone... Like, that's not going to make you happy. (laughs) So it used the big five theory to determine participants' personalities. So it's like five different sort of traits that they were measuring. And they were, one, openness to experience, two, conscientiousness, three, extroversion, four, agreeableness, and five, neuroticism, which I found super funny because I actually looked at the section of the study where they'd broken down, like, what people were actually spending on against all of those traits And in neuroticism, one of the highest, like, statistically that people had purchased uh, or, like, spent their money on were traffic fines. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, I can see that. (laughs) And it's like clearly these people aren't, like, neurotic and freaking out about, like, police or rules. They're, like, probably freaking out about something at home. Like getting to that appointment (laughs) or, like, like, things that don't actually matter. It's like, I'm pretty sure that like spending your money on traffic fines isn't boosting your happiness. But, like, no. <laughs> um, but basically the lesson that came from that sort of study to me was not to conform to societal expectations of spending if it conflicts with your own values. If you were to think like, I should do these things because that is what is expected of me, but it doesn't actually jive with your own personal view, then don't do it. Right. Money can buy happiness if it's spent in the right way, basically. Like the right way for you, not the right way, you know, in a societal sense. 
Right. So like people who are trying to keep up with the Joneses sort of thing, they're not going to find as much satisfaction in. Exactly. Yeah. And that could also be connected to like people of a really high status, like in a wealth sort of sense, because there's a lot of expectation of, you know, in keeping up with the Joneses or that whole sort of lifestyle of things you need in order to appear a certain way. Um, or to keep up that sort of life and that would be things that might not necessarily jive with how you personally feel and yet you're still having to spend your money therefore or like have more money and you know it's not going to feel like it's buying you happiness because it's not actually about you as a person. I don't know if we're the same in this respect but anything that I do that doesn't jive with who I am like deeply distresses me. Yep. So I can't imagine having the pressure of having to conform in certain ways. So the next article I read uh, was called Buying Time Promotes Happiness, and it was by Ashley V. Willens, Elizabeth W. Dunn, Paul Smeets, Renee Beckers, and Michael I. Orton. It was published in 2017 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So they surveyed 6,200 adults across the US, Canada, Denmark, and the Netherlands, and they found individuals who spend money on time-saving services report greater life satisfaction. Hmm. So time-saving services were things like meal delivery, uh, a house cleaner, lawn and garden care, you know, things that save you time personally. Obviously, that is beneficial because it was yeah. what I was saying last week about like, you know, you can be happy if you buy time. That's what it really means. I mean, I think there's a few ways that you could buy time as well. Like even that's one obviously is like, you know. Like outsourcing. Yeah, outsourcing your errands and your like household tasks. But it's also things like if you get sick and you buy medicine, you know, like you're Mm. buying, you're extending your life. You're buying time. time. Yeah, Yeah, like literally (laughs) buying time. That's interesting. And I guess from a capitalist point of view as well, like, outsourcing is also contributing to someone else's paycheck. I mean, it might be different now, but where my father-in-law, my stepmom-in-law were living in Chile, basically my stepmom-in-law, I don't think she was working at the time, but they were still like, no, you are expected to hire a house cleaner because you're expected to kind of redistribute your wealth. Mm. And I thought that was kind of cool. Like, Yeah, I was thinking about that even as I was writing this stuff down because I was like, whoa, you know, it's not even a class issue if you talk, if everyone was doing it because it's like the people who are doing your lawn could still hire someone to clean their in- inside of their home, you know, or like the people who are delivering your food might have someone come mow their lawns, you know, like yeah. you don't, it all sort of still shares around. And if everyone's doing it, it doesn't become a class thing in the same kind of way. What you just kind of like the study you just referenced is actually really exciting for one of the points that I want to bring up later about time. Um Yeah. There was a Birmingham University study that was called The Dual Model of Materialism, Success Versus Happiness Materialism on Present and Future Life Satisfaction, published in 2019. So basically it broke down that there were two types of materialism, which was success materialism and happiness materialism. Mm -hmm. So they defined success materialism as wealth and material possessions as a sign of success in life. Whereas happiness materialism was wealth and material consumption as a sign of happiness in life. Success materialism is like wealth signifies success, but they did say that money can motivate to achieve, like money can motivate you to achieve major milestones, which can make you feel happier in the long run. The happiness comes from the completion of of a set goal sort of thing yeah and because like if you're i mean i found it interesting that a few studies used you know we're talking about happiness but they use the term life satisfaction um and then also use success a lot and they they were sort of interchangeable in a lot of ways but that was a way that sort of made it a bit 
more of a distinction between happiness and success and to say right. they're not the same thing. Like you could be successful and be completely miserable. You can be happy and not successful. But life satisfaction is something that I think a lot of people would find to be a more like it, it's fluid. Like it could be you could have life satisfaction being highly successful or you could have life satisfaction if you're not necessarily successful, but you do live what you feel is a happy life and you're satisfied in that. I don't know why it surprised me, but definitely exploring this topic has made me think about happiness and life satisfaction and wellness. And like, as you said, life satisfaction, I feel like would be much more easier for me to achieve. Yeah. Cause it's just being okay with it. It's like, yeah. I am satisfied with this versus like, I feel great about it. because I still think that's just not realistic at all I think like Keanu Reeves said something similar to like what you were saying last week like I don't know why we like society says we need to be happy all the time like it just doesn't that's not how it works like yeah yeah Yeah, whereas you could be satisfied for a pretty long period of time I think you're always going to ebb and flow in your emotional state but having an overall sort of feeling of like no I think I'm doing okay yes you know that's that's enough sometimes yeah I agree And what was your last thing that you read? So the last one was from the Journal of Applied Psychology um, by someone named DeVoe, and it was called Time is Tight, How Higher Economic Value of Time Increases Feelings of Time Pressure. And it was published Hmm. in 2011. And basically it said people with more money choose to spend time on stressful activities such as commuting and shopping, and they perceive their time as economically valuable, so they (laughs) want to make the most of it. And it talked about like buying time and the benefit of that. And, you know, you, you feel that you have more control over your time when you're able to buy your time and that valuing time over money uh, raises social connectivity. Really? Um, yeah. And so there was one thing that I found I was like, yes, about this because it was so fucking true. It was talking about perception and how things are perceived. And basically when people in society have extra money, they're seen as successful but when they have extra time they're seen as lazy and so it's like who's to say which one is actually worth more because you might completely value your time over money and yet you'll be seen and so it's just a fucking capitalist class bullshit like you're you must work all the time in order to be seen as a successful member of society but if you actually have spare time and that's what you value you're way more successful. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess it's like, I mean, (laughs) I'm absolutely not economically successful, but I have a lot of time. And I feel like a lot of people would perceive that as laziness because I'm maybe not, like, I feel like there's a, I don't know what the value is, but I feel like there's a, there's an income bracket where maybe it's like, oh, it's okay that they have a little bit of time off. But if you are below that, and yeah, then you have spare time. Be working. You need to be a good poor. A good poor. <laughs> yeah, a good poor. Like you're obviously like not spending your extra time, like it, maybe just like enjoying your life or, you know, trying to survive. Like if you have hobbies, why aren't you monetizing them? Like- right. Um, whoa, whoa. Uh, hmm. Okay. So our Patreon is uh, patreon.com. Fuck. <laughs> it's a similar thing, but it's like, you know, if you're if you're poor, you should be seen as like looking for a job all the time. Like how when you're fat, you should be seen as like being like self-flagellating and working out and dieting. Like you need to be performing as if you're wanting something else. This is like, seems off topic, but is on topic. One of my favorite quotes, and I really hope I get it right, is from this Canadian author and artist, Douglas Copeland. It was 
youth is a time of life lived for an imaginary audience. I just feel like that's so fucking true with like, you know, when you just get to a certain point where you're like, fuck it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I'm not going to participate in this performance that I don't value or that I don't believe in. And I think anyone who's overweight that doesn't actually want to be working out should fucking stop. You know, who who is it for? Like, who is any of that for? If you're participating in anything that you don't think is actually, you know, what you want to be doing and it's for the benefit of someone else, like, I don't know, maybe that needs to be unpacked a little bit more. Yeah, I totally agree. But then it's also like, you know, people, you know, actively abusing you for how you look. There's like a oh yeah a safety and health element to it. And I don't mean health as in like, oh, like this fat person's going to die from a heart attack. Yeah, like mental health. or like, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. As if that would be what you meant. What do you feel were like some of the overarching themes that you found from what you read this week? So I think a lot of it was still obviously confirmation bias. <laughs> but it was still a lot of – most of the studies, to be fair, were about the fact that money can buy happiness to a point. As long as you're spending it on things that you value, especially if you're spending it on things that will help buy you time and, you know, however you quantify success or happiness or however you get your life satisfaction, that would be the main thing to unpack in order to know where to put your funds, I suppose. Mm. And and if you wanted it even to it to be money, like maybe your happiness comes from time. So how did you find your research this week? This week, I managed to speak to one of my friends, Adrian, who's an economist um, that I'll play shortly. And we can kind of use that as a launching pad. But before I start playing the interview, just two notes. First off, we reference the GDP, which, you know, I still won't claim that I totally understand what that is. GDP is the gross domestic product. You'll probably hear a lot of politicians using it, especially in Australia. Um, Basically, that's how we try to measure our success. So just using the definition from Google, it says gross domestic product is a monetary measure of the market value of all the final goods and services produced in a specific time period. And then second of all, Adrian briefly mentions ABS, and that just means Australian Bureau of Statistics. So I just wanted to kind of clear that up before I play. Okay, Adrian, I'm talking to you today because uh, this week for the podcast, I'm trying to find out whether or not money can buy happiness. My initial position is that, yes, it can to the point where it can lift you out of poverty and maybe free up more space to obtain happiness, or at least it will remove some stresses that come with being economically disadvantaged. I wanted to come to you because I know that this is kind of your jam. You've done a little bit of work on it and you just have a general interest in it. So I just wanted to hear what you think of my assertion and whether I'm right, wrong, if there's any um, thing you'd like to add. Yeah, absolutely. So for background, uh, I do have a master's in development economics and the focus of my research whilst I was doing that was measures of happiness and sort of what is happiness and what makes people better off. So the actual question, (laughs) does money... Does money equal happiness uh, sort of leads to the next question, what is happiness? Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to bother to try and unpack that. Philosophers have been for uh, a very long time. But at least uh, from our perspective, from sort of an economist perspective, we tend to equate happiness with the concept of well-being. There's a whole 
load of different measures from that. There's actual what call themselves ha happiness indicators. Uh, I wouldn't say any of those are perfect, but they're the best available estimates. And that's simply because what happiness is to each individual is a slightly different concept. And for that, I'd sort of like to point you people towards uh, the work of Amatea Sen uh, or Marcha Sen. I pronounce that wrong every time, um, who helped develop uh, an index called the Human Development Indicators uh, or the HDI, mm -hmm. which is a sort of objective measure of well-being for a country meant to be sort of a, a big comparator to uh, GDP. Right. So sorry to interrupt, but from my understanding, um, at least Australia tends to measure its success along the lines of the GDP, which from my understanding is grounded in like how the British Empire could afford World War One? Is that correct? So, so there's a little bit of debate as to what the whole purpose of GDP was the first time. Um, right. I will say Lucas, who uh, invented it, the economist, he didn't think it should ever be used as a measure of progress. Oh, my God. <laughs> so there is uh, quite a lot there. Right. Um, it is a good indicator of the relative productivity of countries, but there are a lot of issues with using it as a measure of progress. Um, and look, we've, we've, we've made some advances in uh, correcting for some of those issues, but from a, say, human happiness perspective, uh, it very much misses the mark because on paper you can have an incredibly well-off country from a G GDP perspective with uh, a horrific level of happiness. But a few countries uh, sort of buck the trend where they report a lot higher happiness than, say, their GDP would indicate. So so for this alternative way of measuring, I guess, a nation's happiness or whatever, mm -hmm. what was it called again, sorry? The HDI. Right. So what does the HDI take into consideration? So HDI is, a, is just a wellness indicator. I, I like to nickname it the healthy, wealthy and wise indicator. <laughs> so it takes income, it takes health measures, uh, so a composite of a whole, whole set of different health measures and a whole different set of education. And the philosophy behind that is the, the, the point of bringing it up is that well-being or happiness, there's two components to it. You, there is your capacity to realize your potential advantages and the potential advantages offered to you. So say we've got two countries that are exactly the same or two people who are exactly the same and offered the same set of possibilities in life. And this breaks straight back down to your point. The one that has the capacity to realize those opportunities is going to be the one who is going to have a higher level of wellness or utility for a pure economic term or happiness. So, so what money, money's role in that is it's, it's the enabler to the realizing of potential opportunity. So from my understanding, money can be a vehicle like to get you to that point where you're able to realize. Yeah, and absolutely, there's a whole bunch of caveats on that. So uh, the reason why I bring up the, the concept of opportunities is there are situations where you, where you may have a whole bunch of opportunities available and a very small amount of money can change mm -hmm. that. But there may also be situations where you are constrained on those opportunities. So even a very large amount of money isn't going to change your relative position or your relative level of happiness. And do any of these, like any of the literature that you looked at, did it look at um, like matters of race and sexuality and gender at all as like factors that might inhibit wellness? Those constraining factors? Absolutely. So you can have two people who are equally well off in, we'll, we'll do the economist thing where I reduce everyone to units. 
Um, <laughs> you can have two people who are theoretically identical, but if there is some cultural or social reason why one person is unable to realize opportunities, even even wealth isn't going to Hmm. Uh, like uh, provide if they are of equal wealth you know they, they're going to be less happy right yeah also it's very very difficult to pick how much money is required to overcome those barriers especially when they're deeply ingrained social cultural uh issues like a lot of gender and race issues are and even just say the indian caste system is a great example of this you you just can't buy your way out of it. Really, I I don't know much about that system, so I I just assumed it was related to wealth. So it's a it's relatively outdated now, as far as I'm aware. I'm probably wrong, but a lot of that is about the family you were born in and the area you were born in. Um, right. And okay. you just can't, you you can't buy a different place to have been born from. Hmm. What that sort of means is that there been been a little bit of work done out of. Uh, Princeton on like the relationship between wealth and happiness, given that we have these constraints of culture, etc., that get in the way of it. Um, and they, th- that was where that some of those cross-country comparisons came from and those outliers um, that I was talking about before. What they found in general is as an individual gets more wealthy, you have more ability to realize opportunities in life. But a lot of economics is underpinned by a concept of diminishing returns. So as you acquire more of a unit of capital, the marginal increase of that unit to your well-being is going to be lower. So if you draw it on a graph, say happiness going up your y-axis, money going a across the x-axis and you draw a curvy line that just eventually flattens out. Okay. What that's saying is yes, early on for every extra unit of money you have, you are better off. You there's comparatively more opportunity. In a day-to-day life, it's, you know, we'll start at the very bottom. That might be, say, a single parent being able to buy new school shoes for their child, being mm-hmm. able to afford a day off work, stepping up to a university student being able to not work whilst yep. they're studying, a middle class family being able to take two weeks off, go on a international trip together. As as these examples, and obviously these aren't the only things that are afforded by this. Uh, As these examples go up, the day-to-day impact of the purchases tend to become less and less significant to Hmm. quality of life. You know, new shoes for your school child is a little bit higher priority than, say, or or let's go a bigger one, medical bills. Um, (sighs) Medical bills is a lot higher priority than being able to take a holiday. Both give you happiness, but one of them is sort of essential to living. Right. So the marginal improvement of your ability to afford a holiday and your, the marginal improvement of your ability to afford medical bills is very, very different. And what you get is at low level, yes, money absolutely can buy happiness mm-hmm. because happiness is just, just your ability to realise opportunities that are presented in the world around you. Yeah, so I guess it, 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 it depends on multiple factors, including where you're starting off. So even that middle-class family, I guess, would get some amount of happiness but it's going to feel like it's it's not as steep perhaps as yeah it, it, exactly and it, the, and the point is it's it's a relative thing and you can also outside of sort of specific examples you can also think of it as the number of different things because for someone that's got five dollars in their bank account having an extra hundred dollars in, in their account unlocks so many more mm-hmm. things than the person who's got five hundred dollars in their account getting an extra hundred dollars 
Yeah, right. This is why you get you tip up the other end where you get into the billionaire scale where money is effectively worthless to happiness. It has no little to no impact. And that's where you start seeing the ultra wealthy just being able to do things that look frivolous with their money because it doesn't impact their quality of life in any way, really. God. And then I guess like once you're at that point, I'm just imagining money being meaningless. And then what you would have left is, is work on yourself and your community and interpersonal relationships as a source of happiness, maybe. So so actually, um, that raises an interesting point about using money as your ability to do these things. It's kind of what I was hinting at with you need those opportunities required. Money is just a lift. Money is just access to removing constraints. Money is just the universal thing that you can do. You can buy things you need or you can buy other people's time. Uh, What money can't give you is your own time or more Mm -hmm. hours in a day. So when you start getting to sort of those ultra wealthy levels, the constraining factors on happiness, what the research shows are things like time in your day, ability to spend time with friends and family. So really it, it, it just shows the disparity between the haves and have have nots on sort of what what are the constraining factors. That's fascinating. So I'm just thinking of people who are maybe like middle class, and mm-hmm. um, I guess the the increase in wellness or happiness is like starting to the, the jump is less steep. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about like I guess time at work and stuff like that would take away from these other things. So like um, being able to spend time with your family and kind of social situations, are, yeah, and like that's less opportunity there though by working to to have that money. Absolutely. And traditionally we see when the economy is getting better and better and sort of the middle classes are fairly well off in stable jobs, we start seeing a lot more attention paid to concepts of work-life balance. Hmm. It is becoming a constraining factor for those for people because jobs are sa- stable and safe and it's not really a problem. Also, you see this in like a really good example of this. There are a lot of other factors in play, such as uh, time. But a really good example of this is just retiring. You reach a level of uh, level of wealth where you are you have reached a level of happiness, and this is where you get people who are able to retire younger. Is really, and I don't profess to be an expert in the microeconomic decision making here. Really. In my opinion, a lot of what would be driving that is that these people have hit a level of happiness that they are satisfied with and they realize they can maintain and then they can lift a constraint from their life and go do something else Hmm. with that time. Right. And then you get the, uh, what are they, the silver nomads, I guess, (laughs) wander around Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's really fascinating. And do you have just whether or not this is backed up by the literature, I guess a mix of the literature and your own beliefs and knowledge, what do you think Australia could do better to lift happiness? We have a really, really cool measure. It's released by the ABS called the Real Net National Household Disposable Income Measure. And what that does is it measures what, in terms of real dollars, the household income after household living expenses. And that is a much, much, much better measure of per capita wealth or um, income than a very broad measure like GDP per capita. Right. I would love in my lifetime to see a a massive colossal movement away from GDP. Um, And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see a lot more smaller, wealthier economies focusing on happiness measures. So would that be like Scandinavian countries? Yeah, so Scandinavian countries, Bhutan led the way on it, but there are some oh. other political issues there. As far as I'm aware, uh, 
I'm not an expert on it, but they don't measure GDP at all. They huh. just measure happiness. They don't care about GDP. And New Zealand has recently introduced some uh, prioritization towards happiness rather than uh, production and GDP. That's fantastic. Yeah, we're seeing these ideas coming through. And honestly, when I was going through uh, my master's a few years ago, it was very hard to find anyone in my cohort or even in the professorship that thought GDP was, was the best measure. So I think there is a low level of excitement around we know GDP isn't perfect. Maybe we can get there mm-hmm. on finding something a bit better. You know, World Bank still releases the HDI every year, but that ha- that does also have its flaws. And the first the first measure to come around is the one that everyone anchors on. So GDP is GDP is here to stay. Mm, okay. I think a lot more attention can be paid to other measures and maybe a little bit of prioritization of other measures over GDP. Um, I think something like real net national household income per capita, I I think that would be a very, very good move for Australia to start taking a look at, especially when you have these political slogans talking about, you know, more money in your pocket. And that's really a true measure of it. GDP does not care about where the money goes. No. That it's been produced. Um, And I think more attention to those flows and the disparities in those flows is very, very important because, you know, as I've discussed, the value of a dollar to someone with a million dollars in the bank and the value to, of a dollar to someone with zero in the bank, they're very, very different. Yeah. And it's relatively easy for us to set up taxation system, government programs that maybe start moving some of that equality around. I mean, we can all go on forever about how it's just better off for everyone if everyone's a bit better off there's a whole bunch of social literature on that yeah awesome well thank you so much for discussing that yeah okay so that was my conversation with adrian it cut off at the end there and i was talking to myself for a whole two minutes i thought that was kind of abrupt i cut that out (laughs) but it was really exciting for me before when you were kept bringing up the theme of buying time. Because mm, he said you couldn't, right? That's what stuck out to me as well. I guess if you're poorer, then you can like outsource and so you're freeing up time. But then once you reach like this millionaire, billionaire wealth, you still only have 24 hours in the day, no matter how much you're outsourcing stuff. So maybe that's a thing and it's like, and I guess like Adrian explaining that, yes, money basically does buy wellness or happiness because it's a vehicle to allow you to realize opportunities for yourself in your mm-hmm. life, which I think, I mean, again, it's like even you and I talking about life satisfaction, the opportunities we want are basically just meaningful work and to to be able to enjoy the people we love and to be able to do art. And I feel like money can buy that and free up that well, time. Just, there are a lot of things. It's things that a lot of people take for granted. Like I was talking to my coworker last night actually about um, a job that I was applying for where the salary was $63,000 a year. And mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit. Like I don't even know what I would do with that kind of money. And this coworker used to be a lawyer, right? So he was right. like, la- he was laughing at me and was like, that's so funny. Like that's such, it's not that much. Like, no, they don't get surprised. it. Yeah. And then I was like, it is though. Like even when I've been a full-time worker, I've never made even $40,000 a year. So to me, that's a crazy amount of money. That's an extra easy 20K that I wouldn't know what to do with. Even when I was making 40K a year, because I don't go on holidays, because I'm so used to not having all those sorts of things, I, it was just extra money. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I would yeah. still live the same way because I'm accustomed to living like a poor person. And then I just had extra money, you know, but not enough that you could really like be extravagant or go on a holiday or take time off work and do those sorts of things. But it was still like, yeah, if it was 63,000, like that's, that's a lot. That's a huge jump. And I feel like that also, again, like it goes back to what Adrian was saying is like that jump for you would be so steep. Yeah. Like that's quite significant to you. And this kind of brings me to the little bit of extra research I did. Copenhagen based happiness research institute. I looked at their, first I looked at their happiness quality index, which was published in 2015. So first of all, they noted that measuring happiness isn't new. And as Adrian said, like Bhutan have been using happiness as a measurement um, since the 1970s, which is actually really progressive. uh, That's quite progressive. Although, okay, I don't know anything about Bhutan. The two things I know now about Bhutan is that they've been measuring happiness since the 1970s. And also they have a dragon king and a dragon queen. That's the name of like their monarchs. Whoa. Uh, can I fucking move that? I'm just, I'd am i be pretty fucking happy if I had a dragon king and dragon queen. Like, like it sounds dope. Like, yeah. I was so sad that I will never be dragon queen in my life. Anyway, sorry. The Happiness Research Institute in this publication also noted that a lot of happiness rankings, because a lot of people try to kind of quantify this, um, a lot of them are based on averages. And Happiness Research Institute wanted to want, like, they want to look at happiness inequality and how happiness is distributed across people as well. Um, so, so basically, that's something to keep in mind um, whenever you like see these articles coming out that like X or Y is like their new happiest country on earth or happiest city in Australia. But then I also checked out their 2014 publication, The Happy Danes. Mm. which looked at the happiness in Denmark and what factors contributed to them being consistently, like for them being one of the happiest countries in the world. So first of all, there were multiple factors for why Danes are happier. Two factors I want to highlight are security and wealth. In this sense, security isn't just the sense of security from like crime and bodily harms, but security that is provided by, in quotations, the welfare state of Denmark. Uh, which has a negative connotation, but I don't feel like it should. No, so like healthcare and like social security and all that. Yeah, like they have like a robust social security net. The CEO of the Happiness Research Institute, he has a few books out that I would recommend, mostly the little book of Luca, I think it's called, L-Y-K-K-E. And I think he was saying that in Denmark, for every child that's born, the two caregivers or one or two caregivers they're given 52 weeks of paid maternity leave and they're able to divvy that up however they want. So you can have two parents home for the first six months. Or, or one parent for... The whole yeah. year or they can like stagger it because like they also recognise that the first two years for child's life is where like a lot of shit is like ingrained into their brains. And so it's, yeah. so it's like if you have happier parents... Anyway, I'm sorry, that was a bit of a, a side note. But yeah, so... The robust social security net in Denmark provides, it results in decreased uncertainty around illness, unemployment, and old age. And it's well documented that less uncertainty in one's life means less anxiety. And so basically what I wanted to say was, you know, if you have this job that has an extra 40K, that is a less uncertainty about how you're going to pay the next few weeks' rent. That's yeah. less uncertainty of how you're going to, like, visit the dentist. Maybe that's what you're co-worker maybe doesn't quite understand or is a bit removed from is the anxiety 
that comes with uncertainty. If you haven't had that security ever as an adult, then it just puts you in a perpetual state of anxiety. Whereas if you you feel like you could return to it at any time, it's not as stressful. Mm. So like he could just go back to law. I don't have a career like that. Yeah, so that that was security, which I think we both touched on last time. It's like, yeah, you need your basic needs met, you know, and that will decrease anxiety or make you happy or however you want to frame it. And then the other key factor in the Happy Danes publication was wealth. And there's a strong correlation between wealthier countries and increased happiness. So, you know, a lot of countries in the West are like they're wealthier and so compared to developing nations, they're marginally happier. But the Happiness Research Institute went further and looked at how happiness between class is distributed in Denmark. And they found that there were no significant differences in happiness between the least and most wealthy people in Denmark. Yet the least wealthy people in the United States are significantly less happy than their Danish counterparts. Mm. And I feel that it is linked to that security net. So the least wealthy people in Denmark are still getting healthcare, childcare, um, social security, whereas the least wealthy people in the United States would rather, you know, would rather catch an Uber to the hospital than pay for an ambulance. For anyone that doesn't know, I lived there for three years and there was times where I thought like, if I'm ever in a car accident, if I like get drunk and fall over and break my arm, like I'm only one accident away from bankruptcy. And that's what people that have to live with every fucking day that don't have insurance. And that's terrifying. And like we, you know, obviously are not in um, very secure financial positions personally, but at least we have fucking Medicare. We have Medicare. And I know if I was like fucking dying, they will look after me for free. Exactly. The, The most that things cost in emergencies here is parking if someone wants to come and visit yeah. you. So, yeah, is there anything else you wanted to add? I thought it was interesting that we sort of seemed to tackle it in slightly different ways. Like, I think a lot of my stuff was to do with an individual perspective versus a societal perspective. Yeah, that didn't occur yeah. to me, but yeah, So you're I thought right. that was, it was good to hear both sides of it. But yeah, still classic, not shifting from my hill. I still absolutely think yeah. money can buy you happiness. Just is like everything, there's always caveats, but like, I think we discussed them. Uh, how about you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like if, if you ever catch yourself saying money can't buy you happiness, like... I was like doing the forks just now. <laughs> I realized that that doesn't yeah. translate over audio. Yeah. And maybe if it's not buying you happiness, think about what you're spending it on. That was our exploration into does money buy you happiness? Uh, next week, we'll be asking the question, has anyone actually been abducted by aliens? If you'd like to support the show, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash a hill to die on pod. Or you can click support at the top of our website, ahilltodieonpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ahilltodieonpod. You can like us on Facebook at ahilltodieon. You can follow us on Instagram at ahilltodieonpod. And you can send us an email at ahilltodieonpod at gmail.com. Bye. Bye.